All right. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of our weekly Friday market update. Every Friday at 12 o'clock Pacific time, we go live to go over the relevant headline articles of the week. We go over the data itself in terms of what is actually going on with the Bay Area market. However, today we wanted to change things up. I caught up with my good friend Aaron at Farmers Insurance recently, and we had him on the show probably a good maybe six months back now plus. And yep. there's been a lot of just general questions that I've had. Uh, others may have questions, especially when it comes to homeowners insurance. And it's going to be good to always get these trusted experts to be able to have them. And you can hear for yourself uh, what may have changed or what are things to be aware of when it comes to getting homeowners insurance. So, Aaron, thanks for joining again. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to just jump into some a few questions. So yeah. thanks for having the, me. Yeah. So one of the questions that. I get is let's talk about the difference between uh, insurance for condos and townhomes. So from my end on the real estate side, it's actually interesting because a, an agent can technically list it as a condo or a townhome and they may look like a traditional townhome, but the ownership structure may actually be a condo. Now there's a few kind of nuances and pros and cons from an ownership of one that looks like a townhome, but it's a condo ownership. But what's also usually another question is the, the loan product tends to be different. And Aaron, why don't you share a little bit about what do you normally see from a homeowner's insurance? Because that's a little bit different too. Um, share some a little <clears throat> bit about that. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. So in terms of condo insurance, uh, typical condo insurance would be kind of similar to like an apartment building, but then just so happens you own that apartment. So that would be considered a condo. So with the HOA, how they usually set those up is the HOA will have a CCNR, which is the agreement between the owners and the HOA that what they have insurance in place. So they may have interior coverage and exterior coverage. So the common areas, exterior, the roof, outside, all covered under the CCNR. You can have some condos that will say, hey, well, actually, I see a lot of them that will say, hey, you are responsible for the interior coverage. Some people call it walls in, some people call it studs in, meaning they'll cover the outside and the, con the, and the common areas, but you have to cover the inside yourself and your own personal item and your personal liability. Traditionally, a townhouse, they would just cover just the common areas. You would have to cover the outside and the inside yourself. However, there are cer certain townhouses that I have run into where the CCNR states that they will just cover the outside too, or sometimes they'll even cover the inside. So it's very important for a insurance agent to read the CCNR and to confirm the HOA's master policy, what they actually have covered. So this way we can do a couple things. One is we can make sure that they're not double covered, paying for extra coverage for nothing. And then number two, make sure that they're properly insured. So if they don't have coverage, we want to make sure we give them coverage. And if they have already covered, then we, do, we don't have to give them coverage so they're not, they're not paying for uh, extra coverage for nothing. And what, what are the naming conventions of them? I think there are like specific uh, insurance labels of it. Like uh, I forgot there's like some acronyms. Is there, is there something that's, that's like, Hey, look, this is a condo. There's some acronym for condos, some acronym for like townhomes. Yeah. So typically it, uh, for sure, a condo policy would be an HO six policy. Right. So, but a townhouse that is a non-traditional townhouse that, that requires that, you know, that, uh, that doesn't cover the outside, the HOA doesn't cover the outside, the HOA covers the outside, but not the inside, then you would have the townhouse or the condo covered as an HO6. 
However, if it's a town, a traditional townhouse where you're responsible for the exterior and interior, then that would be an HO3 townhouse uh, policy. So they're slightly different. It just depends on how it's structured on the on the CCNR. And out of curiosity, like from a premium perspective, is it a big difference? Is it a couple hundred bucks difference a year? Like, what does it look like from a consumer's perspective? Uh, from a consumer's perspective, uh, it really all depends on locality. But for the most part, you're only off by a couple hundred bucks. Maybe it's not a huge difference. But the biggest difference is the is the way it's covered and having the right policy for over two hundred bucks. You know. If you have the right policy, it'll cover everything you need. If you have the wrong policy, regardless if it's costing you more or less, you're, you're not properly protected if there comes a loss or something like that. Yeah, I think that's what I want people to also understand. At the end of the day, yeah, you do have a lot of different options when it comes to getting your homeowner's insurance. And it's always good to have somebody manually review those documents because that's how uh, Aaron will be able to know. That's technically how you would be able to know as a as an owner of what you should be getting because there's no point to have double coverage, but at the same time, you wanna make sure there's no gap either. Um, so it's very important to go through those documents. It's always there. Um, the HOA, it's always on the HOA documents. The HOA documents will always have uh, some master policy. They may even have, quite frankly, even an insurance provider that's uh, already for the general structure. So you can always talk to them. You can always talk to an individual like Aaron to see from this, what would be the right policy for that individual. Uh, let's carry on to the next topic. And of course, anybody that wants to chime in, feel free to leave it in the comments below of your questions. And I'm happy to uh, ask uh, Aaron, this is this is a live show. So the next question is related to, it's not so much now because now we've had a lot of rain, at least today, um, mm -hmm. but fire, fire policy, fire insurance was kind of part of the pun, the rage back then. <laughs> and so, uh, what has happened from your time as an insurance provider? Like from my understanding, there are certain areas that maybe farmers doesn't cover uh, as many areas as there were before. Mm -hmm. um, so what has happened with that? Do you see that getting worse? Is it just secondary carriers that are now offering those that are that are in high risk areas? What are, what's been going on in that world? Yeah. So with, you know, all the fires going on, I mean, when I first started with farmers, there, you know, we had rates actually going down for the homeowners because we didn't have all these crazy wildfires. But these last five years, it's like every city is being just basically plummeted and basically the whole city is just burned down to the ground. So with that, what happens is you have a reserve where, you know, basically the insurance carrier, you know, collects all the premiums. And whenever they have to pay out for these areas that they have risk tolerance for, then if the pot is, you know, used up, then the reserves need to be replenished, meaning that we have to, you know, make sure we have enough coverage for the following year that, you know, that we collect the same amount of money that was paid out this year. So they want to replenish that. So whenever they do that, that's, you know, basically they have to request for insurance, you know, rate increase. But, you know, they may be fair, but, you know, that may be unfair to some certain people that might be in like the super low risk that are in the city that are not near the heavily wooded areas. So now a lot of carriers are just, you know, seeing, hey, there's a huge loss in you know, these high wooded areas, you know, maybe we just don't want to insure in those areas. So there's a couple things they can do. One is they can non-renew, uh, which means that you basically have to look for another carrier. Or the other thing is sometimes they'll say, hey, we'll non-renew, but we'll let you, we'll let you, we'll reinstate you and keep you as a holder, but you would have to get a separate fire policy. And that's totally doable. Um, that is an option. Um, but with, you know, unless, unless, you know, these, you know, these wildfires 
are slowed down, you know, basically the government needs to step in and do their part as well. You know, these non-renewals are going to keep happening. Um, hopefully, you know, uh, not, you know, not to anyone, you know, that, that really needs it, which is a lot of people, you know, because, you know, if you, you spend so much money buying a home, you want to make sure you're, you're protecting your, you know, your investment. Um, but, you know, it's inevitable unless, you know, unless people really start, you know, taking action to reduce the fire risk and, uh, you know, that will help, you know, with, with keeping people insured. And what is the process? So if, you know, unfortunately someone gets affected and their house burns down, logistically, what is the process that happens? And what, what do you see as the timeline as to what, what can they do afterwards? Yeah. So one of the, one of the main things I actually tell a lot of my clients from the very beginning, I don't, you know, we don't require, we, we do, you know, if there's a loss, we do require an inventory list, meaning, hey, you're going to have to list everything that was damaged, you know, you know, from the toaster oven all the way to the microwave. Right. You have to list everything. And so, you know, I don't tell my clients, oh, why don't you get an inventory list ahead of time? But what I do, you know, as a tip, I do tell my clients, hey, why don't you go into each room and just take a picture of all four corners, you know, uh, bathroom, bedroom, hallway, living room, kitchen. And this way, when you do have a claim, you have pictures that you've emailed to yourself or to your agent will hopefully willing to hold the policy, hold those photos for them as a memory jogger. So when they when there is a claim, they can say, oh, yeah, I totally forgot about that. You know, now I can you know list all the things in when I have a claim. So from start to begin, from start to end, how the typical process will work is you file a claim with your agent uh, or your, your carrier. They'll reach out to you. They'll say, hey, uh, these are the losses. We're going to send someone out there to look verify that usually takes about you know a few days to a week depending on if it's like a single fire or if it's a wildfire where they have you know you know a lot more people to you know to to, to service and then they'll have you they'll send you a, a form for you to fill out the inventory of what you're trying to claim they will assess what the reconstruction cost would be meaning dumping the garbage buying new material paying for labor costs architect fees taxes permits and then lastly contractor profit and that's what they're going to reimburse you for in terms of once they get everything and everything is settled and they approve everything, you should get a payment, um, you know, once everything's approved, you know, within two weeks. So that process alone, if it's a single home, it's definitely much faster. I would say between two weeks and a month. If it's a wildfire, it may take maybe a month and a half to two months to three months, depending on how big and how big the fire is and how much uh, how much staff they have on hand to be able to help process these claims as quickly as possible. Now, when they, if the, if the, if the home gets burned down, is it a one big check that comes in that now they can use for, if they want to actually build it, or can they just give up on that? Cause they don't want to deal with this again and just use that for somewhere else and sell it as is like what happens in that case afterwards? Yeah. So it depends. So if you have a mortgage and you owe money to a mortgage, for example, you owe 300,000 or maybe let's just say you're almost paid off hundred thousand left. Um, you know, the land, you're like, you know what? I don't plan to rebuild. I don't really like this area anyways. But to reconstruct this house, they they paid me, let's just say, $800,000. So you would have to pay off your mortgagee first, $100,000, because they're the, always in the first position. Then the rest of the $700,000 belongs to you, and that's used to rebuild. Or you can use the full $800,000 to rebuild and not pay off your mortgage. And then what happens after that is you can choose, you can sell the land by itself, you know, for whatever cost is and keep the difference. Uh, or you can rebuild. So, you know, it's up to you what you decide you want to do with the money once it's paid out to you. Uh, but if you do not plan to rebuild, you have to pay your mortgage lender first. That is definite that you have to do because they have to sign off on it. 
So, so it makes it an interesting situation, right? Like, so let's say a town has been there for a while and let's say it's worth a million bucks and that's mm -hmm. how much you'll get. Some people that may have owned it for a long time, their mortgage may be little. So let's say it's 200,000 left on that property. And so they have a potential big, big gain. But if they have, uh, you know, they, maybe they bought it recently, then they probably have a pretty large mortgage. And, and are there many situations or are there any situations that they immediately become underwater? Like the valuation that you provide is lower than, you know, what it may have sold for in the past. Like, are there situations like that where they're basically negative? Um, yeah, there definitely could be that, that possibility. Um, because what we pay you for is not the market value, what you purchased the home for or the current market rate, what right. it's worth right now. That's when right. there's a fire. So you're just, pay, you're paying just or pay the reconstruction costs, what it's going to cost to rebuild it. Um, sometimes your reconstruction costs can be more than the actual value of the home. For example, in Sacramento, California, to rebuild a home that size, uh, you know, let's just say 3000 square foot, it may cost three to 400,000 or four, 500,000, but the value of the home might be only 300,000. So for people like that, they may say, you know what, I'm willing to step away and just sell the land for a hundred grand, take the $500,000 with me, pay off my whatever mortgage, and then, and then call it a day. So it really depends on the person. Uh, for people like in Butte County, when there was that huge fire, I don't see a lot of them rebuilding because, you know, they would have, you know, imagine if you had to rebuild your house, there's a lot of infrastructure and utilities that has to be redone too. You may be the only house sitting there with no neighbors for a long time. So you may want to just sell the land by itself uh, if it's worth anything to anybody. Uh, whereas in Tahoe, you know the land's worth a lot. You know, where there's a fire there, you know everyone's going to be rebuilding. And, you know, the, the value of the land out there is very expensive. So you probably will rebuild as well because it's worth something to you. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Annie, as usual, thanks for hopping in and dropping by. Um, good to see you. Uh, so, so the next question is related in my last question for, for this subject is related to like flood insurance. Mm -hmm. Um, I get this question quite a bit is flood insurance required. And so that's number one, that's, that's the first, maybe one, a one B would be when it comes to flood insurance, if an area is in a high flood risk, cause there's all these like different portals out there. Like even I think online, there's these different ratings of five out of five, 10 out of 10. What uh, happens in that case? Is it actually still required or is only required if the lender, like if there's a flood, flood certificate that's needed? Like what, what's what's the, what's actually the, the case for when it comes to flood insurance? Yeah, when it comes down to flood insurance, for the most part, unless you're in a high risk area, your lender is the only person that can require it, just like when they require fire insurance because they're the ones that have skin in the game because they don't, you technically don't own the home. You're in business with the lender until the house is paid off. So they want to protect their interests. If they say, Hey, you know what? This seems like a really high risk. If a flood happens, I don't want to be stuck with a house that you can't rebuild. And I'm just stuck with, you know, basically a piece of land and a house that's basically going to fall apart. So they may require it. Um, if they don't require it, then it's completely voluntary. You know, if you wanted to get flood insurance or not. One of the things, though, I can I can let you know uh, that actually is a is a really uh, people don't realize is flood insurance both for the most part has a 30 day waiting period. So you so if you know there's a storm coming and you said, hey, let me call my agent, <laughs> let me get flood insurance for tomorrow, you're gonna have a 30 day waiting period because you know you can predict weather, right? They don't want everybody calling in right before a storm or before a hurricane, buying insurance and then canceling it right after the hurricane. So there's 30 day waiting period. Um, 
And so, you know, if you, you know, if, you know, if you're in the heavily wooded area that had a recent fire as well, I highly recommend getting flood insurance because it also includes mudslide. So what happens is once all the woods are all burned down and then all of a sudden it starts storming, that guess where all that, you know, all the roots and everything are all dead and everything that all that mud and all that rainwater is going to, it could potentially get into your house. So first you have the fire you got to deal with, then you got to deal with mudslide. So flood insurance will protect you from that. Yeah, that's interesting. Would you say most clients don't get flood insurance in unless it's required by the lender? Is it, pretty, uh, it really depends on the area. For the most part, um, like let's just say if you live in the city of San Francisco where flood risk is low, I don't see a lot of people getting flood insurance. But like I have some clients in like Foster City, uh, you know, closer to the coast, you know, closer to the edge of the waters. Um, people that live closer to the beach, those people predominantly do get more flood insurance than the people that are like higher up away from the waters and everything like that. Um, doesn't, you know, just because you're at a low flood risk does not mean that you have no flood risk. Uh, right. There's a difference. And a lot of times how that would happen, how it would happen actually when, when I do see flood losses uh, for the low risk areas, it's always the, uh, the sewers, um, the, um, the sewers in the, in the corner of your home on the block where you know, the first time it rains, all of a sudden you get all that debris washed away right into there and then it gets clogged up and then water backs up and then it, and it overflows and comes into your home. And those are the low flood risk areas because you're playing maybe on a flatter surface area. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, that's uh, that's very helpful. Well, Aaron, thanks for uh, chiming in uh, for our market update. Uh, Thank you for having me. If anyone that has any specific questions, uh, Aaron's contact details, I'll have it in the, um, in the, in the details below, or you can just send me a message and I'll share with you uh, his contact details. And he's always readily available and happy to answer all questions. Even if you're not a farmer's insurance client, uh, at the end of the day, uh, understanding what options would, are best for you is the most critical thing. And if you want to use them, great. If you're going to stick with somebody else, at least you're a little bit more educated than you were, uh, prior to the conversation. So, Aaron, uh, good to see you. Thanks for hopping on. Good to see you, too. Happy All Friday right. and have a good Happy weekend. Friday. Thanks for having right. me. You're welcome. Bye now. So let's do. All right. So we will continue with our regular schedule programming. And I do have a few news articles I want to go over the week. So. Number one, should an ADU unit rent for the same price as a regular unit in San Francisco? I pulled this up because it's always been a good conversation for many different reasons, not just San Francisco, but just in the Bay Area, because we're going to see more and more in-law units continue to spring up. Now, it's also important to understand, is it a permitted in-law unit or is it not? If it, We're going to be talking if it's a permitted in-law unit. We can talk about unpermitted space much later in terms of valuation. But when it comes to permitted space, should it rent for the same price? And should it be worth the same amount as if you were to extend out your home to make it bigger? And let me share with you what I generally see from a market perspective. Now, an in-law unit has some interesting pros and cons versus a regular unit. So let's talk high level. An in-law unit is an accessory dwelling unit. This could be in many different ways. It could be a converted garage, which is generally the cheapest way to do it. It could be an attached structure to the home, or it could be a detached structure altogether. So what are the pros and cons of renting an in-law unit if you're a renter versus renting out, let's say, a condo in a complex? 
I think you'll 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 see uh, several different pros and cons, right? From an in-law unit perspective, basically you're at most sharing it with one neighbor, right? So it's you're not you're not going to have too much uh, noise. You have its own facility. You're going to have its own kitchen, own bathroom. Uh, you'll have its own entrance to go in and out. However, when it comes to parking, that will depend on the unit itself. Sometimes you may have some easy street parking. Sometimes you may not even have parking. So that's something very important to understand is what is the component with this in-law unit? What else is comprised of it? Versus a, you know, renting an apartment, it's going to be a much larger entity. You have a lot more to choose from. Um, the locations, as you can imagine, will be tend to be very different. Apartment complexes tend to be in a different location than, uh, you know, housing, traditional housing that are single family homes. So it's it's very important to compare the two. However, I don't see the I mean, I do see the rent lower than a regular unit in SF. I do see that creeping up and it really is case by case. Um, I personally have many clients that have rented out their in-law units. So I have a lot of data points from that perspective. So it's not too far off because there's pros and cons of both. They somewhat are starting to negate one another. And we will see how this plays out because we will get more in-law units. Of course, we'll get more apartments that come on the market. So just like anything else, it will somewhat balance each other out. There may be some people that might favor now in-law units. Now it's a new asset class that was not available to rent uh, before. So something to be mindful of. Related to the value of it, though, of selling a place, right? That's always been a different uh, thing altogether which is, you know, if you had a 2,000 square foot, so 1,500 square foot home with a 500 square foot in-law unit versus a 2,000 square foot home, which one is usually worth more? Now, as you can imagine, it really depends on the buyer situation, right? If you're a buyer and you wanted to, you found the value of the in-law unit, like you have in-laws that actually want to live in it or you want to rent it out for more income, then for the perception of that buyer, that in-law unit tends to be, potentially more valuable than a 2,000 square foot big home. However, that percent of the buyers is much smaller than how most people are traditionally using a home. And so hence why typically if you have an in-law unit, the valuation as a price per square foot as an aggregate is lower at the moment versus a you know a larger single family home. But it's still valuable. There's still permitted square feet. They're still very usable has different use cases for it. Um, but at the moment, it is still from a valuation perspective should be lower than it would be if it was just one larger home. Uh, next, well, as tech titans go to Austin, Miami, and this has been going on for some time, uh, will tech workers follow? I think it's really interesting from if you're a billionaire and you have so much money, then if you think about it and you're making that kind of money, then I mean, the taxes are, are even more important. I mean, we're, we're talking about percentage basis, right? I mean, if you're if they're billionaires and they're getting taxed, I don't know, 10% or whatever the income tax may be there, that's a huge amount that they can then reinvest and do other projects with. However, for individuals, yes, it's certainly a major factor when it comes to the decisions of individuals. But then there's other factors too, right? Network effects. There's also other factors of weather and lifestyle and food and options such as that. The other thing that's important, which I, I actually do agree with a lot, is the aspect of COVID restrictions, right? Like 
the people that are not liking one or the other, they may move from one state or one area to another for that reason. That's more relaxed. That's uh, more friendly to businesses and things like that. And so it will be interesting to see because people will vote with their feet as to which management style or which political structure is going to be best for those individuals. As you can imagine, some people in California uh, may say this is too tight. I mean, we're too restrictive. Everybody's too afraid versus people in Texas may say this is too open. It's too crazy. There's too many ridiculous, uh, you know, no masks required in these different policies that may make people too afraid and they may move out of Texas. While that that is not a large amount of people, there's a lot of people that have moved to Texas. Make no mistake, there are people that have moved out of Texas uh, as well. So it's just something to be mindful of. But at the same time, it will also depend on how the companies decide their growth in terms of uh, are they required to go back in the office? You can see and leave it in the comments below, but I think most people will be returning back to the office um, in January. That seems like across the board. I've talked to talked to a few people at Genentech or that way already. Big tech are all that way. It seems like Delta, cross our fingers, is um, starting to be a non-material thing and people want to be back into the office. The last thing I'll bring up, and we're going to keep seeing this over and over again, right, from malls to homes. And this is kind of happening across the entire part of California. You know, if you think about a lot of the malls, they're all pretty close, generally, next to a major highway. So they are fairly convenient from an accessibility perspective and is a huge piece of land. I mean, imagine how much space a lot of these uh, malls use. So it would be really good, especially if you're not going to use as much of that space anymore to make it high density. It could be condos and most likely actually will be condos because you can fit a lot of people and a lot of housing in those areas. Now, keep in mind, though, a lot of these malls are in pretty good locations. So don't typically expect um, cheap housing. Uh, it will certainly help with housing in general, but just be mindful of that, that there's still going to be a premium over what has previously sold in those cities. But it'll be good to see. Um, I'm looking forward to that. All right, let's wrap things up with the data of the week. San Mateo County, 154 new listings this week, which is quite a bit less. Now, is this because of the holidays? Maybe. Um, but you can see the number of contingent pending is still very high, higher than the amount that were new listings this week. You can see property prices have risen. The lowest of San Mateo County for single-family homes was back in August, basically the summertime. That was one of the best opportunities to buy. But it's still very good. It's still much lower than it was in June and July. But do not be, um, do not be shocked that prices have increased since then. For when it comes to condos and townhomes, you can see relatively predictable. I mean, it's been relatively flat outside of August for the last couple of months. Santa Clara County, same thing, less new listings, quite a bit less, 389, 410 contingent pending. We see prices continue to rise. It has picked up since the summer slowdown, but I personally see it myself when we're making offers. You should see a rise up until probably the Thanksgiving time. And at that time, we'll see how many homes are even on the market then. But you do see a rise at the moment. Condos and townhomes have seen a gradual rise over the year. But if you compare the last five months, very flat, very predictable. Alameda County, 
it has actually declined over the last six to seven months since April. April was one of the higher times, April, May, and has steadily declined, but not much. We're talking about like one or two percent. You can see 457 new homes came on the market that week, 342 contingent pending. When it comes to condos and townhomes, uh, you can see it's been a sl slight increase throughout the months. But like I said, it's nothing too crazy. It's been pretty predictable. Last but not least, let's talk about what's going on in San Francisco. San Francisco single family homes has picked up since September. September was uh, one of the lowest of the last several months. But it's been relatively flat if you compare it to July and August. Pretty predictable. But condos, interesting. We will see what happens as we close out October. We only have one week to go. Crazy, right? One week to go for October. And it looks like it's already trending to be the highest time of the year. This is a very, very different um, re report and result from everywhere else that you just saw. If you've been watching this every week, you can always look back and see what has been the data. But it's been pretty interesting to see. A lot of people have certainly already moved back. It's super lively there. I myself went to San Francisco last Friday. It was super busy. I'm going again tonight. It'll probably be super busy again. So clearly a lot of people have returned back to the uh, returned back to San Francisco. And um, we should uh, be anticipating that, um, that migration continue to happen and move forward. Well, I hope this was helpful. Of course, if you have any questions about the market, you can text me anytime, 408-547-4590. I'm happy to give you an evaluation of your home. I'm happy to also give you my data-driven approach of evaluation of a home that you might be interested in. And I look forward to work with you. Enjoy the weekend, stay dry, and see you at the next one. Bye now.